Hi, hello, I'm Glenn Epps, and you're listening to In My Own Words. I'm here on call with Laura Hamburger, a campus educator for the Advocacy Center in Ithaca, New York. And today we're going to be speaking about the work of the Advocacy Center, the Me Too movement, and how to talk about sexual assault. I would also like to inform listeners that this episode will contain discussions about sexual abuse, harassment, and assault. Thank you so much. Um, So I wanted to begin by uh, laying a foundation about how we do speak about sexual assault and sexual abuse. Uh, What are the do's and don'ts about having talks with friends, significant others, uh, or just discourse on social media? Sure. I mean, I think that it's it's a very, very challenging topic, and we're in a really interesting time in which it's becoming more and more commonplace that these conversations are having happening at the dinner table or um, with friends who've never had them with before or with family members or in the workplace because of Me Too, really, and uh, the way that it's opening up the dialogue for people to engage on all sorts of different levels. Um, I see that really as a blessing, that there's, there are a lot of ends to this conversation. I always like to focus on the do's of the conversation, I guess, and the way that you framed it of the do's and don'ts. The first thing is have the conversation. You know, all of us are engaging with media around this in some way or other. Mm-hmm. We're presented with it nearly every day, especially if we've been following Me Too, um, and following activists who are really speaking out about this and on campuses in particular there's a lot of conversation so i think that it there is so much opportunity to start having the conversation in different environments and what the conversation looks like might change depending on who you're talking to Mm -hmm. so talking to friends might feel really different um, and safer for a lot of people than talking in classrooms. I would say one thing to keep in mind in any context in which this conversation is happening is that there may always be survivors present. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no way to identify a survivor just by looking or making assumptions. Um, Survivors don't look or present themselves in only one way. There's a huge amount of, of diversity experience stories the way that people identify or not as survivors as victims or as just this is something that happened to me and I don't even use that language so I think that one thing that we need to keep in mind when we're having these conversations is how to center the stories of survivors without asking survivors to take on the whole burden of changing um, of changing our culture and of starting the dialogue right we all have a responsibility Mm-hmm. to be part of this conversation in a really active way and a responsibility to do so in a sensitive way. So one thing that we can do is not otherize survivors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not assume that survivors look, feel, are responding in only one way, but assuming that there's integration in the community and there is that diversity of response and of experience and of desire to talk. Um, Some folks are very vocal about their experience, especially since Me Too. It was a platform for people often who had never shared their own experience or their own stories to do so for the first time. Um, And a lot of people still choose not to because it doesn't always feel safe. So never assume that everyone in the room is on the same level and never assume that everyone is going to be okay with this conversation happening in a really, you know, blasé way, sort Mm -hmm. of thinking about sensitivity and and saying, is this an okay way to be talking about this? Are we still giving um, 
survivor's humanhood are we not victim blaming even when it's a conversation between two people this would be where the sort of don'ts come in making sure that we're not questioning the um, victim or survivor's attitude about their response or their actions leading up to whatever the incident of um, sexual violence was and listening to the way the survivors speak about their own experience and reflecting that that's one thing that we can do as friends um, if someone shares a story with us or their own experience or discloses something to us listening to them and giving them space to do that without then going back and saying oh well you know I read this article and it sounds like this label is what you experienced allowing mm-hmm. people to label their experience in their own ways because not everyone wants to use the language that we use universally so recognizing there's so much nuance to this conversation um, and allowing folks with experience to lead the conversation but not um, but not expecting people to to share their stories if it's not a safe place for them to do so I think the most difficult part is trying to create a space that's sensitive uh, when you are when we are often uh, very ignorant about the experiences of people around us and that's mm-hmm. the part that's uh, I think uh, really important as well is uh, that survivors may be in our midst as we're having those conversations but how do we respect um, their own experience and their story while also having a very honest conversation and also when we as uh, people who have not experienced uh, sexual uh, abuse don't have any real knowledge about the experience or about um, what it, what it's like, how do we have a honest conversation that is beneficial to us without insulting a survivor? Right, and I think that there's not one right way to have the conversation, and there are things that are going to be extremely triggering for one person that for another person is a really important part of their own healing and conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, that's one of the challenges of having these conversations in public forums, mm-hmm. right, is that we can't necessarily protect everyone and help everyone find safety, but we can allow people the space um, to choose how they engage, right? Yeah, and that's a big so part we, of, yeah. uh, and that's a big part of, uh, I think, some conversations that have been had about social media. Uh, when a lot of social media, during, for instance, during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, a lot of social media was being flooded with discussion about sexual abuse um, and harassment, and uh, some people were saying this creates a not so safe space for survivors, but. Um, experience and healing are very different from one person to the next and so one person may not be so triggered by like viewing social media while another person might become overwhelmed by it um right and that's sort of the the approach of trigger warnings right mm -hmm. of saying i want you to know that in this content that i'm sharing online or in this conversation that we're going to have in a classroom um, or if I'm coming in to present in a space or something, we'll always say, this might be triggering for people. This might bring up things expect that you expect to feel in this conversation or that might surprise you, and it's okay to react to those feelings in whatever way you need to, right? If you are having a conversation with friends and you find yourself very impacted, it's okay to say, you know what, I actually think that I need to step away from this conversation. Or if we're talking about media content online, to give yourself, allow yourself to have that day without, you know, without opening Facebook or without opening the news um, so that 
you can seek safety in the way that works Mm -hmm. um, because each of us again is different and and we're lucky to have um to have this movement that is is creating so many ways to have this dialogue and it can be really difficult are there any other do's and don'ts for having a discussion about sexual abuse um i'm sure that there are (laughs) so i would say if one thing that I think about often and one thing that I talk to people about after programs that I'm doing on campus or that people call our hotline about a lot is how do I support a friend mm-hmm. who's talked to me about this. And I spoke to that a little bit earlier. Um, one thing that I always talk about with supporting a friend is allowing them to make their own choices. Mm-hmm. What's happened if when someone has experienced violence is that they're ability to make decisions for themselves, for their own bodies, for their own choices has been taken away from them. Mm-hmm. So one of the most powerful things that we can do is give them back um, that opportunity to decide how they want to move forward. So we can always offer options. You know, we can offer the Advocacy Center as a resource or Title IX on campus as a way to um, move through some processes and get some resources. Um, we can talk about what we know and what's worked for us. Mm-hmm. But we never want to tell someone what they should do. There's not one thing that someone should do, and everyone has the right to decide for themselves. So uh, what is the Advocacy Center? So the Advocacy Center of Tompkins County is an organization that serves people impacted by relationship violence, sexual violence, and child sexual abuse. When I say people impacted, I mean the uh, survivor or victim, as well as their loved ones who are looking for support, looking for ways to have that conversation, and the larger community. So most of the work that we do is one-on-one with clients. The way that most folks get connected to us is through a 24-hour confidential hotline. Mm -hmm. Um, The phone number for that is 607-277-5000, and I hope there's a way to sort of blast that Mm -hmm. fake, too. Um, So most folks get connected to us through that hotline, and... A lot of times we'll use it just to have a conversation about this is an experience that I had either 10 years ago, 30 years ago, or two days ago, or I'm just, like, this just happened a few hours ago and I need to talk it out, um, where people can have those initial conversations and where they can get connected to our advocates who do the one-on-one work of helping people navigate some of the systems that are really complicated, um, such as finding appropriate health care after an assault, finding housing if they're leaving an abusive relationship. Um, we support people through legal processes and through the Title IX process on the college campus. So we can support people going through these processes and just have those conversations about individual healing and what that looks and feels like for people. And then at the same time, we do community programming and educational programming to try and change the dialogue a little bit mm-hmm. about how do we have this conversation out in the world um, and how do we make our community safer in general. When someone is thinking that they should come to the advocacy center, how can they be certain that they've experienced some form of sexual abuse? and not just discomfort. What is the difference between sexual harassment, assault, and abuse? I would say that if anyone is feeling like they're at the point of um, of thinking something's happened to me and I don't know if it's okay or not, that is the point to be reaching out. It doesn't have to be the advocacy center. We know that the first person that someone often goes to is a trusted friend, um, and that's okay too, but we want people to know that this professional 
um, community resource with very, very well-trained people exists. Um, there's been quite a lot of research both on college campuses and off about why people reach out or what resources they use. There is a um, narrative that exists that a lot of um, but folks who have been impacted by violence might think, well, this isn't that bad. It's not as bad as what someone else experienced, right? It isn't violent. It wasn't by a stranger. It mm-hmm. wasn't this narrative of we're talking about assault of somebody jumping out of the bushes or in a dark alley. The reality is that's not what most people are experiencing. Um, a lot of people are very, very impacted by something that our society tells us isn't really that bad. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what we do also in the educational sense is try and reframe that dialogue. So that doesn't, it, the spectrum of violence does exist from, you know, unwanted comments all the way through violent assault, right? That's a reality, and the impact is inevitably going to be different, but everyone takes on that impact in a different way, and we don't create the standard at the advocacy center of saying, okay, you have to have gotten to this level of harm in order for us to to support you. Mm -hmm. Um, We're here for everyone in the community to to talk through some of those questions. And that's a lot of what we do, of listening to people processing, this is what happened, here's how I'm feeling about it, and then we ask the question, okay, what can we support you in doing next, or what do you want to do next? You've brought up that uh, you support the survivor, the Advocacy Center supports the survivor, and you also brought up earlier about not questioning a survivor's experience. And that's actually something that's getting a lot of pushback um, from uh, certain groups about not questioning uh, their survivors' in, uh, intentions or experience or what might have actually happened um, instead of just, and instead just taking them for, the, for their word and how that can be dangerous. Is that dangerous? No. Um, I think that it's what we can do as a supportive community, right? I, it is not my job to be judge and jury of someone's experience and saying, well, that wasn't bad enough, or that doesn't sound real enough, or that doesn't pass, pass my, my test. You know, we don't, we don't ask people to clarify or give us more explanation or ask for people's motives if they come forward and say that they've been robbed, mm-hmm. right? So why do we do so in cases of sexual violence? We have been so taught to misbelieve And when we're talking about sexual violence, we're not only talking about violence against women, but we have to talk about the role of sexism, the role of homophobia, the role of transphobia in these conversations. We are are very willing to disbelieve, right? And where does that come from? And how can we reframe that narrative of how do we start by believing people? Because we do know that this problem is so pervasive mm-hmm. and rates of false reports are so low. They are equivalent to false reports about robbery, again, which are about 2 to 6% based on which um, research you're looking at. False reporting is very, very low. Is it never? No, you know, these things happen. But if the conversation or the dialogue that we're creating around this is let's assume that this person is lying until we can hear proof that they're not, it creates an environment where people are unsafe, seeking support, getting help. Um, You know, there is a role of the criminal justice system in in having someone held accountable that they do need to do that investigation. Mm -hmm. But as support people, especially as friends, as family members, as loved ones, 
Um, it's not our role to investigate. It's our role to support. Hmm. Taking uh, someone's word about being uh, sexually assaulted or ha experiencing sexual abuse was very uh, prominent during the Kavanaugh hearings uh, when mm -hmm. people were calling, uh, many people on the Republican Party were calling for the critical analysis of Christine Blasey Ford's testimony and her story, her inability to recall certain accounts. Um, but there is a certain concern that uh, even in some cases uh, there might be a experience of just bad sex or uh, discomfort that might come from a personal, uh, that may be more personal and less external. I don't think that that difference between personal and external necessarily, or maybe I'm misinterpreting your, your, um, your reply, but if someone has had an experience of, um, if someone is, has, is reflecting on a sexual encounter mm -hmm. and something feels wrong to them, it is because something was not right, mm -hmm. right? And when we talk about, this is why we have to bring back the conversation about consent mm -hmm. before we can even talk about the nuances of, um, of how do we respond to this as a society and as individuals, we have to be able to understand what is consent and how do we get that from our sexual partners mm -hmm. and the people that we care about. Consent is so vital in this conversation for avoiding those, those what, what I think we're, we interpret as gray areas, right? Real consent involves seeing the other person as a full person with desire, with needs, and with boundaries, right? And so if someone is coming out of an experience and saying, that was, that didn't feel good, or that was kind of mediocre, I think a lot of people can identify with that as an experience of bad sex. If someone is coming out and saying, I'm feeling ongoing harm from this, and weeks, months, years later, it's affecting how I'm approaching my campus, how I'm approaching um, the classroom that I share with that person, my fear of seeing that person around, my own self-worth, and the way I'm seeing my body, those are huge impacts that probably indicate that that person's boundaries were violated. And I don't, again, this would go back to the last question, that I don't think it's our role as um, supportive members of the community to question what kind of sex that person was choosing to have in order to feel that impact. Mm. That's very important. Thank you so much for answering that question. Sure. I also want to bring up men. Men are a very huge part of the conversation. Um, and I want to bring up that in August, there was an article in the New York Times headline, What Happens to the Hashtag Me Too Movement? when a feminist is accused. Uh, it was the mm -hmm. case that seems it was very a very familiar story being turned on its head of Avital Ranel, a world-renowned professor of German and comparative literature at NYU who was found responsible for sexually harassing her male former graduate student, Nimrod mm -hmm. Reitman, by the college's Title IX department. Uh, what are people supposed to think about that when uh, someone who we admire or someone who is a member of the Me Too movement or uh, someone who we've just known in other ways uh, does something like this. Yeah, this is when we have to start talking about the nuances of the question, right? Because there aren't um, only good people and bad people and there aren't only bad people who are doing harm. It would be so simple if that were the question, right? But the reality is we are complex people 
people um, with complex relationships. And a lot of us have been in the situation of being confronted with someone that we we think that we, you know, even through the media, we can feel like we know someone, mm-hmm. and then some information comes out about them, and we feel like that is, you know, it it is it is sad, it is disappointing, it is frustrating, it makes it can make us feel unsafe to learn that someone that we thought that we knew, that we trusted, that we respected, um, or that we loved, has caused harm. Um, has done something really problematic and really not okay. And I think we have to make room for both of those realities in that conversation because if we can't do that, then we can't have, we can't understand, um, especially when we're talking about women causing harm and especially when we're talking about people in our own communities doing so, we can't begin to talk about accountability. If we can't recognize that people are capable of having good ideas, of contributing to our society, of being leaders, and also cause harm to a person, we still have to be able to take those things seriously. And it's very frustrating um, from from my perspective as someone who advocates for all survivors to see a narrative where where we disbelieve someone because we respect them mm-hmm. and we, because we respect them as a feminist. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly sad to see that, to see these narratives come out. It's very frustrating um, and can be really disturbing for folks also. And when there is, um, when there's a community of support rallying around that person, it can silence other survivors who may have been impacted by that same person or or who, who share a community with them and there was a lot of frustration around that um, that article and, and and that that story and who was supporting that professor too right about how do we how do I go on and interact with my professor who mm-hmm. signed a letter in support of that person for example um, the story also gave light to uh, the cap- capability of men to become uh, survivors of sexual mm-hmm. assault and uh, harassment. Um, and that's often something that's not, that's misunderstood, uh, how men can be sexually abused and harassed um, by other men or by women. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, what do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we know we can't turn a blind eye to the fact that this is not, while this, while harassment and assault are crimes that are very much gender-based crimes, given that um, given that women are are most impacted, um, trans women even more so, and and that perpetrators do tend to be men. These are gendered conversations, but it is not exclusively about men abusing women. Mm-hmm. When we close off the conversation to that, we silence people's realities, we silence people's stories, and we make it impossible for people who don't see themselves reflected in that narrative to come forward and get support. Um, we know that men are impacted by violence, sometimes by men and sometimes by other women. We also know that people who are gender non-conforming, gender queer, and trans are also even more highly impacted by sexual violence because sexual violence is not uh, an interpersonal private crime, right? It is a way that people exert power and control over the other person, and that can play out in so many ways. Um, So we have to hold those complexities to be real in order to allow all survivors, all victims, to see themselves 
as worthy of healing and seeking support and using the resources that are available to them. Um, I will just use the opportunity to say also that at the Advocacy Center, we serve people of all gender identities, not only women, and we do actively work with people of many gender identities. Um, and, you know, that goes for all of our services, including our confidential shelter. Last year, there was uh, the case Dr. Shirley Collado, who was, uh, her story was brought up about her uh, being accused of sexually uh, abusing a former patient of hers. Um, and that caused a lot of confusion and uh, distrust in the Ithaca College community because the students didn't know how to uh, address the situation. I want to, I guess I'm going back to the original question that, uh, that we were talking about was how do we support the survivor when we've known the abuser? In this case, um, Dr. Collado was someone who we, we only knew her as a student mm -hmm. body and we didn't know the abuser. So people became very critical of the story and of the, uh, of the survivor. Yeah. Did you have uh, an opportunity to speak with her? Um, with Dr. Collado? Yes. No, I haven't spoken personally with Dr. Collado. Okay. We wondered how the college community should deal with that. How should the college community deal with that situation, even going forward? So I don't think that there's one right answer. And this is a little bit what we were talking about earlier, is that this is there's a lot of nuance in this conversation. Um, and I think that there has to be room for ongoing conversation, right? And what that exactly looks like, I can't say if it's, you know, one thing that we're able to offer is survivor support groups for people who want to have um, these conversations outside of, of when it's not, you know, when the, when the conversation isn't led by members of the campus community. For some students, it means going off campus. It means finding other resources. Um, I would say it's, I think about my answer to your previous prompt around um, the NYC professor, right, where the community, many people came out in support of her mm -hmm. because they loved her and they respected her and she had contributed a great deal. People are going to do that when someone that they look up to and who is a great leader in their community and who, um, you know, who they want to follow is accused of something like this. And that will have long-lasting impacts on students, right? Um, I think that we still, and this is something that the Advocacy Center can do, is, is continuing to center the experiences of students and of survivors and listening to the complex realities that people are living and creating space for that dialogue. Uh, I wanted to also ask you, would it have been normal for her to reach out to the Advocacy Center to seek advice? Um, probably not. It's not really our role to work with people who have been accused. And honestly, it's probably because it would be, um, it, it could, it could be, it could do more harm than good in the community in general. Our role and our one of our strengths is our ability to support survivors and 
be a survivor only organization, mm-hmm. right? So we actually, um, in our community, we might end up sending someone. There are people who reach out to us saying, you know, I have been, um, either I've been accused of something and want to deal with it and want to, you know, work through the complications of that, or I want to change as a person. And I think that that's really great to hear. There's a lot of complexity in that also, but it's not really our strength. Um, and it's not where our resources, we, we're, we don't really have enough resources to be able to provide that service as well as all of the survivor-centered services that that we are providing. So we would probably get that person connected to other um, organizations and services in the community. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Is there, uh, uh, would you like to share the number for the Advocacy Center uh, one last time? Yes. So any student or community member who's looking to get more information or reach out to us could do so through our 24-hour confidential hotline, which is 607-277-5000. Thank you so much, Laura, for spending this time to spread clarity and help us understand what the Advocacy Center is and the complexities of sexual abuse. Yeah, thank you, Glenn. Um, Can I say one more thing? Yes. Which is that if individuals or groups um, or activists are interested in continuing this conversation, I am lucky enough to have a role where I can support students in creating space um, or creating their own events and getting information, whether it's just bringing materials from the Advocacy Center or helping facilitate or being present for a conversation, a movie screening, um, an event, whatever it might be. So I um, am happy to support students in that also. Okay, thank you. And thank you for listening to In My Own Words. I'm your host, Glenn Epps. If you're interested in continuing to listen to this or any other podcast offered by the Ithacan, you can hop on over to theithacan.org or you can find us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Just type the Ithacan in the search bar and you're set. See you there.